All right, if you're having a seat, please turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Now, I, I was um, raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a church-going home. Sunday mornings, we were there every Sunday. Sunday night, church started up again. We were back up there Sunday night. Wednesday night, we were back at church again on Wednesday night. And so at a pretty early age, I became convinced that Jesus uh, had died for my sins and I believed in him. But sometime in my, my late teenage years, I began to wonder... Uh, do I believe just because I was raised in a Christian home? Or is this, this faith actually mine? Or to put it in simplest terms, is it true? Do I believe it because it is true? And so, you know, I'm kind of, a, I'm kind of skeptical by nature anyway, and so I, I set out on a course to intentionally doubt my faith. And as I went through that process, I discovered I was not the only person who had kind of gone down this path. Right? I, I found a book, an old book by a guy named Frank Morrison, uh, he was a, a skeptic, and he determined that he would, he would just crush Christianity with his withering intellectual attacks. He ended up becoming a believer, and he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? Great book. That was kind of one of my first introductions uh, to, to really being a skeptic of Christianity and scrutinizing it uh, as, as, a, as a rational idea. Was it really true? And then I stumbled across Josh McDowell, who also uh, tried to destroy Christianity, became a Christian, and wrote The Resurrection Factor, a book that was enormously influential in my uh, kind of coming back to faith. Uh, and then C.S. Lewis, of course, an, an avowed atheist who ended up trusting in Christ. He wrote Mere Christianity. And what each of these men discovered, and what I discovered along the way, is simply this. Uh, if there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. But the, the heart of the matter is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we have no hope to be raised from the dead. If there is no such thing as resurrection, we're still dead in our sins, our faith is worthless, why bother? Uh, the resurrection, in a sense, is like that one block when you're playing Jenga. If you leave it alone, the whole structure will stand, but if you pull it out, everything will crash down. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So why do we believe it? None of us saw the resurrected Jesus but we have stories, we have uh, witnesses who recorded their accounts. Do we believe that they're telling us the truth? I want to ask you a question. Any men in here, did you have a date this weekend? Any men, you have a date this weekend? Oh my gosh, there we go, one, wow. <laughs> That's not really, not what I expected. Like Easter, taking the weekend off. <laughs> Applies to married men too, right? Single or married, one, okay. Next week we'll be talking about relationships. <laughs> So stick with my illustration anyway, at least one of you, right? Okay, so if I said to you, prove to me that you had a date this weekend, how would you prove it? It's a historical event, so it's non-repeatable. It does not submit itself to empirical method. You have to bring in other validation. Maybe you'd say, well, here's my receipt from the restaurant where we went. Or look at my phone. Look at the GPS tracker. You can see where we went. Or you'd bring in uh, your wife or girlfriend and say, look, she's a witness. We did go on a date. Or maybe the, the hostess at the restaurant or the server that served you. You've got testimony from these other people. And I would begin to scrutinize and say, are these really reliable witnesses? Are they trustworthy? See, none of us were there for this singular historical event. All that we have to go on is the testimony of witnesses. Were they reliable? And I want to give you three reasons. There are more, but I want to give you three reasons that I think that the testimony of the witnesses is reliable and that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. So I want you to read with me, beginning in Luke chapter 23, 
and verse 55. It says, Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned to the tomb, and they reported, returned from the tomb, and they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, and also other women with them were telling these things to the, to the apostles. But these words appeared to be to them nonsense, and they would not believe them. First reason I think that the witnesses were telling the truth is that the first witnesses were women. Okay, let me let me unpack that for you a little bit. You go, okay, um, what's the big deal? Well, in first century Judaism, women were not allowed to testify in court because they were not considered trustworthy witnesses. Uh, Josephus records uh, this. He said, even the testimony of multiple women should be rejected because of the levity and boldness of their sex. I don't know what that means. (laughs) Celsus, who was a second century critic of Christianity, he mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene, who was one of the the women at the, the tomb, as an alleged witness, since she, like all women, was a hysterical female deluded by sorcery. The attitude in the first century toward women was extremely condescending. They're considered uh, uneducated and unreliable. This is completely contradictory to the attitude that the Bible has toward women. Take you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. By man, he means mankind. Mankind is incomplete without male and female. Equally created in the image of God, complementary to one another, If one is not present, there's deficiency. Equally in the image of God. In the New Testament, Galatians 3 says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, you're all equally in the image of God. You're equally redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are co-heirs of the grace of life, Peter would say. Jesus' attitude in particular elevated women extremely. So again, you say, well, so what? So what if women were the first witness? Well, if the witnesses were actually making this up and they intended to persuade people to believe a lie, they would never have included women as the first witnesses because that would be rejected in their culture. So let me give you an analogy. Imagine that I've got a a scam investment. I really want to get your money from, like, I got to figure out a way to persuade you that you should give your money to me. Well, how would I do that? How would I come up with my best arguments? Well, I probably would say, look, I put three investments out on the floor and my cat walked up and put his paw on the middle one. This has got to be it, right? Now, I want to get a little credit here that I worked really hard to be creative and bring in my cat to a, an Easter Sunday sermon. That's the best I could do, right? Well, I wouldn't say that to you, would I? No, I'd say, look, I read it in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, there's an article about this, this investment opportunity in Bloomberg. 
Uh, Warren Buffett is giving me money. Really, you tr- trust me. Right? I would line up my best evidence, my most credible witnesses. Instead, the apostles, right? men wrote this story, and men said, this has got to be true, <laughs> because women were the first. Women were the first witnesses, and notice, not surprisingly, verse 11 says, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Why? Because they were women. The story has an air of credibility, because there are elements that are included that wouldn't normally be included, would be rejected by that culture. The first is this, women were the first witnesses. Second, uh, the heroes were fools. The heroes were fools. Those who lived the story and told the story and wrote the story did not make themselves look good in this story. Now, uh, when I go to a party, uh, I, I uh, really h- uh, hate the mixers, right? It's just because I'm antisocial. I just, you know, I, I, don't, I don't enjoy that little, part, that little part of the party at the beginning where you're going to play a game and you're all going to mix around. And I think the absolute worst one is this. Let's sit in a circle and let's tell our most embarrassing moment. I mean, no one... No one ever enjoys that. So I have now, like I have my stock most embarrassing moment that's really not embarrassing to me at all, but it kind of makes people pity me just a little bit, but I don't care kind of story. So I'm, I'm all lined up, right? So here's my story. Uh, when I was uh, uh, doing college stuff, we used to go on campus and give talks once in a while, and InterVarsity invited me to come up and do a, a talk and just talk about the gospel, right? And they were inviting all their friends. This was in uh, the MSC. We used to call it the, the pineapple room, for those who've been around a while, because the lamps, the they look like pineapples, right? So it held, held about 300 people, and it had a low stage, maybe two feet up, and the, the stairs were out on the side. So they finished their mixers. I don't even remember. Probably did the most embarrassing moment, right? And they're all doing their mixer, 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 and then it's my turn. They invite me up. And so since the stairs were on the side, I decided, well, I'll just jump onto I'll just hop onto the stage, right? I'm, I'm, I'm athletic. So I hopped on the stage, but I caught my toe. Boom. I just sprawled out, right? My Bible goes everywhere. My notes go everywhere. And, you know, for most people who just, they dread public speaking, they go, oh my gosh, that's been horribly embarrassing. <laughs> for me, really, personally, not really. I just picked up my stuff and went. But I've got a tale to tell. Right? If you read the Gospels, it reads like a narrative of the disciples' most embarrassing moments. Right? They, they don't really ever shine in the Gospels, honestly. So Jesus is telling them in this intimate moment, that he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be crucified. And the disciples say, yeah, whatever. So when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and your left? Because we're having this big argument about who's the greatest. Or Jesus goes out and he feeds 5,000. It's miraculous. He just breaks bread and breaks fish. And the loaves and the fish, they multiply, 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 right? And then they get in the boat. They have this big argument. Nobody brought bread. What are we going to eat? Wait, what? Oh, you of little faith. I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Now, I chose particularly to read this out of the Gospel of Mark, 
because Mark got the eyewitness account from Peter and wrote it down. And if I were Peter passing along an eyewitness account, I would not have included this detail. Turn to Mark chapter 16, excuse me, chapter 14, and verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are even talking about. And then he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep like a baby. Man, I would have cut that part out too. Right, Those who, who lived the story and told the story don't appear in glamorous terms. They're foolish, and they're telling an absolutely foolish story. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 5. And as you're turning there, remember that Jesus was not the first Messiah. He wasn't the first person to show up on the scenes as a messianic figure. So after the church was born, day of Pentecost, and then the disciples began to be persecuted... Uh, They were brought in to basically to stand trial in front of the Sanhedrin. Chapter uh, 5, verse 34. It says, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, respected by all the people, he stood up in the council, and he gave gave orders to put the apostles outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. And he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. Now, these were men who rose up to be messiahs, to cast off uh, the the Roman government. And uh, the people of Israel knew that they weren't the messiah. Why? Because they died. Right? The messiah doesn't die. The messiah is not a loser. The messiah is a winner. The Messiah doesn't get killed. The messiah conquers. The messiah will, will crush Rome. So, why did Peter... Uh, pull Jesus aside and say, no way, Jesus, you're not going to a cross. Because if you go to a cross, that proves you are not the Messiah. On the Emmaus Road, two men were walking and they were completely distraught because Jesus had been crucified. And Jesus walks up with them and they begin to talk to him. And he asks them, why are you so distraught? And they said this, because we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. But obviously he's not the Messiah. Because he died. But these are, these are foolish men carrying an absolutely foolish message. If they wanted to prove to Israel that Jesus was Messiah, the last thing they would say is he was crucified. Because Messiahs don't get crucified. And then they took that same message and they went out to a Greek audience, an incredibly analytical audience. And they said not only was he crucified, but he rose from the dead. And the Greeks with their analytical minds said, Impossible. Because we've never seen anyone rise from the dead. This can't happen. Remember when Paul was in Athens, giving his sermon on Mars Hill. 
And they're all listening to him because uh, they think he's talking about a God-named resurrection. But when they discover that he's not talking about a God-named resurrection, he's actually talking about a literal resurrection, they throw him off the stage. This is an absolutely and utterly ridiculous message. Foolish men telling a foolish story, and they were willing to stick to that story all the way to the point of death. You realize that uh, all of the apostles suffered for sticking to the faith. All of them actually were, were killed a martyr's death, except, except John. Right? John uh, was just a tough old bird. He got boiled in oil and somehow survived it. Right? But Peter was crucified upside down. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. James was beheaded. They were all killed for their faith. People don't die for something they believe is a lie. So maybe they had a mass hallucination or they all saw the resurrected Jesus. Conspiracies don't, don't hold together. My son and I have a fun time. We go back and forth talking about different conspiracy theories, right? You know, uh, people still believe that the earth is flat and they've got all kinds of reasons why the earth is flat, right? Um, the moon landing was, was not real. The first one, it was just a conspiracy to kind of propaganda against the Russians. We love talking about these conspiracy theories. But here's the fact. Conspiracies just don't hold together. Right? If you involve too many people, somebody's going to break. And we have 11 cowards who had already broken once. One of my favorite uh, comments in this regard is by Charles Colson. For those of us who, who saw Watergate happen, remember he was part of the Watergate conspiracy. He ended up going to prison for his part in the conspiracy with Nixon. But while in prison, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And he said this, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Third reason, and most importantly, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty on uh, Easter morn. There is no credible historian that denies that there was a man named Jesus, that he lived and died in Palestine, not Palestine, Palestine. Uh, Real guy. What they can't explain is why was the tomb empty. So the first explanation for an empty tomb, no body on that Sunday morning, is that the disciples came and they stole the body. I want you to return to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, and they said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, and it is so to this day. And I wonder, I I mean, I genuinely wonder if, if anyone believed that story in that day. Because it's absolutely and utterly ridiculous. That the guards had fallen asleep. Remember, uh, let me set the historical context for you. Uh, A Roman guard would have consisted of 16 professionally trained soldiers. 
And at night, they would rotate who would sleep and who would stay awake. So four would stay awake, and then the other 12 would surround them, right? So the tomb would be behind them, four would stay awake, the other 12 would be out in front. So if someone came and attacked, they'd have to step over those Roman guards to get to them. If any of those four fell asleep, they would be executed. That, that, was, the, that was the sentence. That's why the Jewish leaders say, look, take a lot of money. If the governor hears about it, we'll stick up for you so that you're not executed. Later in the book of Acts, Herod executed a guard for not keeping a prisoner. Letting the, you know, when Peter escaped, he said, no, you're, you're going to be executed. Right? That was the sentence upon them. So what we have to believe, if this story were credible, is that, uh, first of all, that they fell asleep. And then that these cowardly disciples somehow slipped around the Roman guard and then silently rolled the stone away, not waking anyone up. Now, to put this in perspective for you, this is a typical uh, Jewish tomb cut out of stone. You see the, the groove there in front of the, the tomb itself. The stone would be rolled up, propped, then the prop would be removed, and it would roll down against uh, this opening in the, stu- in the structure. On Jesus in particular, it was sealed over. There was a, a seal placed upon the thing. Now, this is a pretty typical one. For really uh, elaborate, ornate tombs, they could be even larger um, and Joseph of Arimathea was an incredibly wealthy man. So what had to happen is the disciples sneak past, silently roll the stone up, and then sneak away with the dead body. Or alternatively, maybe they woke up the Roman guards and the 11 disciples killed them all, or beat them all up, right? So all 16 just destroyed them. You go, really? Is that, is that credible? Is it a reasonable story? I can't imagine that anyone even in Jesus' day believed that this happened. But that was the first story because the Jewish leaders had to come up with some reason for the fact that there was no body. Now, another possibility, it wasn't actually proposed in that day, would be this. Maybe the Jewish leaders moved the body. But why? Right? They didn't want a story circulating about a resurrected Jesus. So if they had moved the body, they would have gone to that other tomb and they would have pulled out the body and said, no, 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 look, here it is. You were mistaken. We just moved the body, but here's the body. They didn't want anyone believing that Jesus had risen from the dead. Another possibility is this. Maybe the Roman authorities moved the body. And again, we have to say, well, why? Why would the Roman authorities move the body? They didn't want a resurrected Messiah because they didn't want an insurrection on their hands. Another possibility is that the followers went to the wrong tomb. Now, uh, I'm going to take a risk here because, uh, you know, stereotypes sometimes have some basis in reality. And so I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to, uh, tread into really uh, sensitive grounds. But I'm just going to tell you, um, m- my wife has informed me that for, for her and for a lot of her female friends, they don't do north, south, east, and west. They look at geographic landmarks, right? That's how she navigates is by landmarks. So remember, the first to the tomb were women. They went the night before. They'd already been to the tomb. Then they got up the next morning on Sunday or two mornings later on Sunday, and they went back to the tomb. And how do they navigate? Well, they navigate by landmarks, right? So, but they'd already been there once before, but maybe, maybe they got confused. So if they got confused and they weren't sure where they were going, they went to the wrong tomb, they would have stopped and asked directions, right? I'm just, I know, I know it's, but they would, they would have, right? They would have asked directions and the Jewish authorities would have given them directions to the right tomb or Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb it was, would have given them directions to the right tombs, right? So they would have found the place. Well, then they left and then the apostles came back, and I'm treading on stereotypes again, the apostles came back, and maybe they went to the wrong tomb, and they would not have asked directions. But, 
the women would have told them, right? (laughs) Or Joseph of Arimathea would have told them, or the Jewish authorities would have told them. And what we fail to realize sometimes is that the area in which this tomb was set was really actually very small. About half the size of Texas A&M University East Campus was all of Jerusalem in that day. So losing the tomb and going to the wrong one is not a credible explanation. One final possibility is this. Jesus didn't actually die. But he woke up after experiencing crucifixion and he escaped. Now, to... To believe this, remember what happened in crucifixion. Um, These are professionally trained torturers. They began by whipping Jesus. The whip that had uh, stones and bone embedded in it, so they, they had shredded the skin and the muscle off of his back. And then they put a crown of thorns on his head and they jammed it down until it was bleeding and they took rods and they beat him. Beat him. And then and then they laid him on a, a crossbeam and they drove spikes through his wrists, either severing or crushing the nerves in his wrists. And then they put him up on the cross and they drove a stake through his two feet. And there he was, hanging on the cross. And as he got more and more tired, he would sink lower down and eventually his shoulders would become dislocated. The only way that he could breathe was to rise up because his diaphragm was compressed. So he would push up on, his, on the spike, take a breath, and lower himself down. Push up on the spike and then lower himself down. So the guards knew when a person who was crucified had passed away because they stopped pushing up. Remember, uh, Pilate said, go and make sure that the prisoners are dead. And they went and they saw that the two Robbers, one on each side, had not passed away yet. So what did they do? They broke the legs, right? So they couldn't push up any longer. But they came to Jesus. He wasn't pushing up any longer. He had already passed away. So the guard just jammed his spear up into Jesus' side, right under the ribs. And then they took him and they put him in a cold, dark tomb for three days with no food and no water. But somehow he revived and he rolled the stone away and he slipped past the guards. It's just not reasonable. It's just not reasonable. The reason that I believe is because it's the most reasonable explanation. God has made us rational beings. Our our faith is not a blind leap, but it's based upon the best understanding of the evidence. So how do we apply this? Let me give you just a couple of of thoughts for uh, applying the message of the resurrection. First is this. Evidence increases our confidence. Don't be afraid to scrutinize the evidence. If it's true, it will stand. If it's true, it will stand. Uh, The best book I think out there right now that's focused just on the resurrection is this. The Case for the Resurrection, Gary Habermas. Uh, Let me encourage you. Maybe you need more convincing. Well, don't let the issue set. There's no more important issue. There's no more important matter. Did Jesus, in fact, rise from the dead? You've got to get this settled. Or if you're already a believer, dig down deep. Uh, I had a friend ask me just this last week. He said, hey, Brian, do you ever have doubts? I said, well, sure. There are mornings I wake up and I go, what am I doing with my life? Is this all for real? 
Do I really believe that? And, and I go down the same mental tracks, right? I've dug them pretty deep now. I start with this. I just look out the window or walk outside and I say, something exists, not nothing. Something exists. It's an effect. And every effect has a cause. This is a huge effect. It's vast. It's enormous. And it's so complex. We call it the universe. But every effect has a cause, and the cause has to be adequate to explain the effect. So this cause must be vast, and it must be complex, it must be powerful, but it also must be personal, because we're the most complex organisms in this universe, and we're personal beings, and we're rational beings, and we're moral beings, and so whatever made all of this must reflect that. And there's one who said, I'm creator of all things, and he rose from the dead, and I've got to dig now deep into the evidence for the resurrection, because if he rose from the dead, then he's telling the truth, and I can believe, and I can base my life on that. If he didn't rise from the dead, then I need to keep looking for that one who fits the explanation, the cause for this effect, but I'm convinced that it's Jesus. Second, confidence improves our perspective. Why do we fear death? Because we're not confident in resurrection. Right, but if we're confident in resurrection that Jesus rose from the dead, and if you believe in him, you'll be raised from the dead, then we don't fear death. We don't like it. We're not, it's not pleasant. We're not excited about it. But we're not afraid of it. It's not paralyzing. Why do we fear the troubles in this life? Because we don't think about the resurrection. There's more to come, and it's better. So I don't love the world as much, and I don't fear the bad things in the world as much. Because I've got hope that transcends the grave. Why do we fear sharing Jesus' story? Well, because we're really not that, that convinced that he, he died and he rose from the dead, and it matters. It matters more than anything else. It's the most important historical event, the most important question that anyone will ever address is, who is Jesus Christ? Is he just one of those other messiahs who popped up and he was killed by the Romans? Or is he the Son of God, God in human flesh, who hung on a cross, not for his own sins, but for ours, and that believing him we have life? And if we examine the evidence of the resurrection, we can have confidence and hope. It's true. It's not just a story made up. It's true. Let's pray. Father, I pray that increasingly you would convince us. Or maybe we've been convinced for that first time and we believe, but we need to grow in our confidence that Jesus is in fact the resurrected Son of God. I pray, Father, that you would, uh, even this morning, as we looked at just a a few thoughts, a few ideas, that you'd build our faith, grow our faith, grow our confidence. And I pray, Father, one one specific application that we would uh, long for our friends and family to know your son, Jesus, to do business with him, because he's real and he's true. Father, thank you for revealing to us the name of Jesus that you are the one who saves. Thank you, Father, for uh, reminding us that uh, through the power of the resurrection, you've conquered sin and death. And we, we celebrate that this morning. We celebrate that with hope and confidence and power. And we pray, Father, that you send us out from this place with renewed trust in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. He is risen. All right, have a great resurrection day. We'll see you next week.